Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Lara. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hey y'all, welcome back, my faithful listeners, and welcome to all of my new listeners. I am so glad you decided to check out this podcast. I am pretty excited for this year's series, so I I hope y'all enjoy it as well. If you also live in the Midwest, we have now reached the time of the year known as Frozen Hell. We've been here for about two weeks, which is kind of weird, Um, and we've had more snow in the past two weeks than we get throughout the whole winter on average. It's It's been kind of rough, y'all. It's just as fun as it sounds, meaning it's actually not fun at all. Please stay inside as much as possible. Anyways, this is Series 8, and I have titled it 2024 We the People. So if you haven't listened to our previous recording yet, which was 2023 Year in Review, if you haven't listened to that yet, take a moment go listen to it. It talks about everything I accomplished last year and what I hope to accomplish this year. This series, as I explained in that episode, is a bit different because this series I plotted out uh, purposely to last the entire year rather than just a few months. So it's going to have more than three topics and they're not necessarily obviously similar to one another. Uh, What I've tried to do is identify what social and political issues we're dealing with today during this presidential year, because it is a presidential year. It's going to be hell. Prepare yourselves. And um, see, like, how Americans, specifically Kansas Cityans, dealt with this issue in the past. So, to start with, topic one to launch us off is actually all about the national presidential conventions that Kansas City has hosted throughout the years. So um, I'm sure you didn't know that we even held national uh, presidential conventions, but we have. Um, We have hosted three of them, actually. Two Republican and one Democratic. Um, And if you are a long-time listener and you remember my series 2, Paris of the Plains, Um, I hope you remember me talking about how Missouri was a leading political influence nationally um, and Kansas City led Missouri in that um, all because of... Sorry, a little issue with the audio there. So I was trying to say all because of Pendergast. So check out Paris of the Plains, Series 2. Check it out. That's a really fun series. So. Uh, We are not hosting a convention this year. Hallelujah. So glad that that didn't happen. Um, Although in 2020, our our mayor did like um, place a bid for us to host. Um, But then I found a um, an article that talked about how in 
2021, he then wrote a letter to the RNC withdrawing that bid, um, citing that with the NFL draft in 2023 and the World Cup in 2026, that Kansas City didn't have enough resources to also host a presidential convention in 2024. And I mean, that totes sounds very plausible. However, um, I really feel like there's a lot more to that politically than just we don't have enough money. Um, so obviously, we're not hosting RNC this year. We're not hosting DNC. Um, and the RNC has already announced that they'll be in Houston, Texas in 2028. Um, but I would be really surprised if Kansas City didn't throw its hat into the ring, so to speak, to host the DNC in 2028. Um, they have not announced yet. So, our first presidential convention that Kansas City hosted was the DNC, the Democratic National Party, in 1900. I feel fairly certain that um, Kansas Cityans today know that the Kansas City Convention Center was not our first convention center, right? Y'all are with me on that? Like, you know about Municipal Auditorium, which predated the current one. The first convention hall was designed by Frederick Hill. He lived from 1860 to 1929. He was a prominent architect in Kansas City. From the little bit that I read, I definitely want to cover him more in the future. Uh, this building was done in the Beaux Arts style. And as I have detailed in previous episodes, that's an architectural style from the 1830s to the 1890s. And it features multiple classical elements like Corinthian style columns. Like what you see in front of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. So it was... Uh, Completed on February 22nd, 1889, but there was a fire. Okay, hang on a second. This is crazy. So everything I read said destroyed, and then the implication was that it was destroyed completely. It didn't say complete. It just said destroyed. And I was like, okay, it's only partially destroyed, right? Finally, I found a source that said burned to the ground. But it was completely rebuilt in 90 freaking days. I mean, what? What? We can't do anything in 90 days today. That's why I was like, no, no, there's no way that it was burned down completely because it was rebuilt in 90 days. And like, just mind blown, still mind blown over that. I wish that we could build stuff that fast today. Wow. Um... So we have so much construction going on in the city. It's only going to get worse. Anyways, rebuilt in 90 days. Incredible. Um, just in time to host the DNC. Because they, they reached out and they're like, no, no, no. We, we still got you. Please still come to our city. <laughs> um, and this was interesting. Quote, David Kwananoka. I feel like I didn't say that quite right. Um, heir to the throne in Hawaii was the first member of royalty to attend a political convention as a delegate at this event, end quote. So, fun fact, David's uncle was actually the last king of Hawaii, and his cousin, Lili Ukulani, which I know I said that right, um, was Hawaii's final monarch before America illegally annexed those islands. So, William Ryan Jennings, nope, said that wrong, sorry, William Jennings Bryan <laughs> earned the nomination that year. Bryan, born 1860, died in 1925, was a lawyer, 
And he's also remembered as a talented orator. And at one time he was a newspaper editor. Um, kind of an interesting fellow. He just, he's, he's really diverse. And yet at the same time, he's not, right? He served in the House from 1890 to 1895. He ran for president. He won the Democratic nomination three times, actually, 1890, 1900, which was here in Kansas City, and in 1908, but he never actually won the presidency. He also ran for the Senate in 1894 and lost, but Bryan did help Woodrow Wilson gain the Democratic nomination in 1912, and afterwards, when because Wilson won, um, Wilson then made William his Secretary of State. And this was surprising to me, uh, simply because it, you know, it always feels like politicians, especially in high positions of power, are absolute war dicks. Brian was a staunch pacifist, and he actually resigned from his position as Secretary of Nineteen, um, as Secretary of State in 1915, um, right after Germany sunk the Lusitana. No, I didn't. Lusitana. That's it. Um, so. A U.S. didn't join the Allies in World War One until two years later, but I think he was like, okay, I see where this is headed. I don't want to be a part of this. So he's basically a lifelong politician, uh, and I feel like he must have been popular in order to be nominated for president three times. But what were his politics? So the American Experience by PBS states, quote, Brian was progressive in politics and conservative in religion, end quote. That actually, now that I say that out loud, that is a perfect summary of him, right? I told you he was a politician. He's serving in the Senate and Congress and running for presidency, you know, being a part of the newspaper. But he was also a leader of the Free Silver Movement. So that was a political movement that advocated for unlimited silver coins. According to Britannica, Quote, that's Britannica Encyclopedia, by the way. Quote, supporters of free silver included owners of silver mines in the West, farmers who believed that an expanded currency would increase the price of their crops, and debtors who hoped it would enable them to pay their debts more easily. End quote. So there is a perfect example of how he is um, politically liberal. And in fact, he supported free silver movement so much. And uh, supported the expanded use of silver that he forced the DNC to add it to the party's official platform in 1900. Quote, the Democratic Party platform of 1900 named anti-imperialism as the most important issue. All right, quick pause. I would love to see the Democratic Party bring back anti-imperialism as one of its building blocks of its party uh, platform because that would change everything about how we interact internationally and who we support, <clears throat> not Netanyahu. And um, I, I believe it would change a lot of how we interact with our own territories domestically. Like maybe Puerto Rico could finally become a state and get some actual support. Okay, sorry. Back to um, back to my quote here. Let's see where was I? Okay, so quote: 
The platform also denounced colonial policies enacted by the current Republican administration after the Spanish-American War and condemned post-war expansionism. During the 1896 campaign, silver coinage and adoption of the gold standard were divisive issues. By 1900, discovery of additional gold deposits and an increase in currency diminished the silver use. Although there was some controversy about the mention of silver coinage, Bryan threatened to withdraw his candidacy, candidacy unless a silver plank was added to, no, sorry, was included in the platform. The silver plank was accepted without protest by the delegates, end quote. That's from the Library of Congress, that quote is. Um, and again, you know, anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, and colonial policies. Would really love to have us bring that back. Anyways, additionally, quote, he was influential in the eventual adoption of reforms as, or such as, uh, popular election of senators, income tax, creation of the Department of Labor, prohibition, and women's suffrage, end quote. Okay, so love that he is a fan of women's suffrage. Um, not the least bit surprised that he's also a fan of prohibition. Um, seems like the majority of politicians at that time were both. Like, they just, the way that those who supported women's rights and those who supported prohibition, like, maybe you didn't necessarily support both, but the way that they um, politicked and campaigned for those were very similar, and so they often worked together. All right, and now here is how he is conservatively religious. I mean, I feel like you just heard some great examples of how he was politically liberal, but he was also a part of the Scopes trial in July 1925. In fact, um, this is apparently what he is most remembered for above all of the other political things that he did. So the Scopes trial was this teacher, John Scopes, was sued for teaching Darwinism as a theory. Um, and Brian was one of the prosecuting lawyers, so he's on the other side. He's like, no, no, you are definitely guilty. This is wrong, what you're doing. Um, and then, you know, I don't, don't know who John Scopes' lawyer was, but he didn't do a very good job because Scopes was declared guilty and fined. Uh, although that ruling was later overturned. Um, to be fair, it's 1925. It would have been more shocking, honestly, if he had been declared innocent than, than guilty. Um, so basically, the Scopes trial is all about the role of religion in schools, something that uh, we are still debating today. All right, that was kind of long. <laughs> I went off track a little bit there, but that's convention number one and Mr. Jennings. Convention number two, hosted by Kansas City, was with the RNC, the Republican National Convention, and that was in June 1928. So Kansas City was almost not chosen that time. Um, the article I read said that in 1927, most people believed that the RNC was going to choose Cleveland, and then prominent Kansas Cityans associated with the Pendergast machine. So again, Please go listen to that series, Series 2, Paris of the Plains. Um, 
members of the machine like city manager Henry McElroy and Harry S. Truman, who later became president, but he was not president yet. No, he's he's just a part of the machine at this point. Um, they formed committees, like multiple committees, to campaign for Kansas City to host the convention because Pendergast wanted it. And what Pendergast wanted, he usually got. Quote, Consequently, their involvement demonstrates how the Pendergast machine clandestinely endorsed the effort and ensured itself a portion of the economic benefits once the Republicans selected Kansas City. Ultimately, the widespread commitment of Kansas City's business and commercial class demonstrates that civic um, boosterism, I think I said that right, I've not really seen that term before, um, and a capitalistic self-interest rather than partisan ambition motivated the support of the 1928 gathering, end quote. So the work paid off. Kansas City goes all out to celebrate this event and promote itself a lot like we did when we hosted the draft or like we will do when we host the World Cup in a few years. Um, but there was some drama, so this was fun. I always love drama. But only in the podcast, man. Drama in real life. No go. That's that's good. Um, so previous RNC conventions in Cleveland and Chicago allowed for integration of, you know, blacks and whites, but not in Kansas City. They were very adamant. We're not doing integration here. Uh, so remember, at this time, segregation's the law of the land. And you know, where you lived in the country, uh, how much it was enforced by the populace that waxed and waned throughout, right? Um, and even though we have, you know, the wide open town here in Kansas City, we have all these famous black folks, famous jazz musicians, the Negro League, um, monarch baseball players. And they're all like really prominent. Like you're walking down the street and be like, oh my God, there's Jackie Robinson. He played for the monarchs. Oh my God, there's Julia Lee. Um, and they were not revered, but like, you know, they're famous. They are, what is the word I'm looking for? It's not popular. It's, um, admired to an extent. I don't know if that's still the word I'm looking for or not, but regardless of, um, and again, their their status as entertainers, there we go, that's getting closer to it. Regardless of that status, they're black. Therefore, they can't dance in this um, dance hall. They can only play the music for us and entertain us. They can't sit next to us at the theater. They have to sit in their section. Um, so what I'm trying to say is regardless of the great influence that they had on Kansas City and you know how it operated during this time with all the speakeasies and whatnot, it's still very distinct. Blacks, whites, and the two shall not mix. Okay, I'm sorry. That was very long explanation. I probably could have found an easier way to phrase all of that. Where were we at? Let's see here. Um, oh, yeah. Quote, Delegate segregation reverberated beyond Kansas City. On a national level, it marked a strategic decision by the Hoover campaign. In order to appease Southern voters, Republicans avoided appearing too radical on questions of racial 
equality, and civil rights. Chester Franklin labeled the lack of attention paid to race issues in the 1928 platform, quote, a sorry crumb, end quote. Negative publicity and outlets ranging from the New York Times to the Chicago Defender undercut efforts of the convention organizers to showcase Kansas City's unity. Delegate segregation in Kansas City also created an opportunity for Democrats who sought to sever the link between black voters and the Republican Party, end quote. Honestly, pretty successful at that. That's when um, the Democratic Party is the one sort of took over as we are the supporters of equal rights among all people, as opposed to um, older generations of Republicans dating back to um, Abraham Lincoln and the abolitionists. Also in 1927, President, at the time, Calvin Coolidge, announced that he did not plan to run for re-election, so Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover ended up with the nomination, with Kansas Senator Charles Curtis as his running mate, and they won the election in November, so we had a Kansas Senator as the Vice President. Herbert Hoover, born 1874 to 1964, ended up winning the presidency, as I said, served as President from 1929 to 1933, so long-time listeners should also remember that means that Hoover became president about a month after the collapse of the U.S. markets, which launched the Great Depression. Needless to say, he was expected to clean it up, fix it up uh, right away, very quickly, and was extremely unpopular when he failed to do so, thus he was not re-elected, leading to FDR's presidency. Before becoming president, Hoover had served um, in offices under his predecessors, both Coolidge and Harding. Curtis, a member of the Caw Nation and senator from Kansas, was a starch supporter of women's rights, the Equal Rights Amendment, which still has not been passed, y'all, and the 19th Amendment of Prohibition. So, like I said, he supports both. Very, very common. And yet, despite his heritage, Curtis also sponsored an amendment to the Dawes Act, which broke up tribal lands. So I referenced this in other episodes, um, fairly sure. If I did, it should have been in my series, People of the Island, or perhaps in my episode with Andrew Gustafson on the Federal Indian Boarding Schools. That particular episode is only available to my patron listeners currently. It's, um, the Dawes Act was a raw deal, like, it was very, very bad for Native Americans, and very, very good for the U.S. because it made um, a giant loophole in which we could take advantage and steal their land. Yay! Please, no, I'm being very sarcastic here. Quote, the Republican Party in 1928 called for lower taxes, maintaining the protective tariff, the, quote, observance and vigorous enforcement, end quote, of prohibition the creation of a federal farm board, and disclosure of campaign finances. Also in the platform was a plank expressing Republican Party's belief in self-reliance and strong local government, the so-called home plank, end quote. So I think this is actually a really good, um, really, really good summary of the Republican Party at the time. And you can see where elements of it are still present today. Um, you know, strong local government, home plank, um, maintaining tariffs. It's interesting to me that 
uh, part of their uh, platform was also disclosure of campaign finances, which uh, I don't know before this how often it was talked about, but it's been an issue for a while um, here in like modern America. Um, yeah, big issue now. So that was the final national convention held at uh, Convention Hall, which was built for the first one in 1900. It was demolished in 1939 when they then built Municipal Auditorium. Municipal Auditorium, I've not dug into the history of. Um, that will be some future topic in some future series. Our final convention is the Republican Convention of 1976. This is apparently the year that they also voted and passed rules stating that the presidential candidate would choose their own running mate. So before this, it was a separate ticket, and you would put in your name, and you would campaign, and you would run, and then they voted on you, just like with the president. I'm not sure if I prefer that, or... I feel like at one time, maybe in the very early first decades of America, the, your VP that you picked was the guy that lost. That, actually, I kind of do like. Like, okay, um, uh, Bush and Clinton both ran. Bush won. Like, if Clinton had been his VP as well, I just think that would have been, you know, another <laughs> Biden and Trump, other m more modern examples. Maybe it would have led to a more balanced government. I mean, fingers crossed. In our extreme polarization of today, that would absolutely not work. Let's get back on track. Quote, The decision to hold the RNC at Kemper Arena brought mixed reactions, as the West Bottoms was were nearly vacant at the time. Still, spirits were high, with Harper's Magazine article describing it as, quote, primetime bacchanalia, end quote. In what ended up being the last time a presidential nominee was decided at a convention, Gerald Ford became the president when Richard Nixon resigned in the face of the Watergate scandal, but he still faced a strong challenge for the not strong challenge for the nomination from Ronald Reagan. Ford ended up winning with Kansas Senator Bob Dole as his running mate by more than just a hundred votes. Yeah, so just a little over a hundred votes. That's how he went. Uh, but he failed to overcome Democrat Jimmy Carter in the seventy-six presidential election. End quote. So. Running for president of the Republican Party. Sorry. Um, yes, Repu Republican Party. I have that correct. Where Ford and uh, Ronald Reagan. Ford wins the nomination. So then it's Ford versus Carter. Carter wins. And Ford, as previously stated, was Nixon's vice president. He took over after Nixon resigned following the Watergate scandal. It's a seminal moment in American history. This is the only time in which a U.S. president has resigned from office. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this event in America's political history, it's tied to a break-in at the DNC offices in D.C. by members of the CIA and Nixon's security chief at the behest of President Nixon in an attempt to ensure his re-election. Uh, sorry, re-election. Um, for years, there was debate, was Nixon really guilty? Well, now they have amassed enough evidence that, yes, they can say Nixon was guilty. Um, so that's bad enough, but 
and this really comes back to the previous campaign, um, sorry, the previous convention, convention number two that we just discussed, um, he attempted to cover up these incidents through illegal use of campaign funds. So, see, recurring, very recurring issue. Watergate also included illegally wiretapping the offices of Nixon's political opponents, among many other incidents. So over 50 people within the Nixon administration ended up being indicted in relation to these incidents. Nearly all of them were convicted. I think there were 10 or less that were declared um, innocent. Oh, I said over 50, right? Not just 50. It was actually over 50. It was like 60 or 70 something. Nixon was not convicted because he had resigned and then his new vice president had immediately pardoned him. I think had Nixon attempted to stay in office and pardon himself, um, that both houses of Congress and the American public would have been absolutely outraged. It would not have worked. Um, and he would have been charged for, you know, at least, at least one, if not more felonies and got to prison. But since they basically sidestepped that issue, honestly, that's why we're struggling with it today with Trump and all of his scandals. Like, there was no answer um, on the, the grounds of president's immunity. It wasn't ever truly challenged, so now it's getting challenged today. It'll be interesting from an academic standpoint how it turns out. Um, in reality, I know most Americans are just fed up with all of the drama. See, I told you, drama's only fun in the podcast. It's not fun in real life. Watergate has also re-entered the American vocabulary in the past few years as the base of pretty much any modern-day scandal or conspiracy, like Pizzagate, Obamagate, and Russiagate. Those are real. Weird names, but okay. Um, if this is of interest to you, Wikipedia has an extensive list of every conspiracy or scandal with gate in the name. It's actually like a hundred or more. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Okay, we're getting way off topic. All of that. Um, as president, Mr. Ford was very conservative. Quote, during his first 14 months as president, he vetoed 39 measures. His vetoes were usually sustained, end quote. And Bob Dole was also very fiscally conservative, so they worked well together. Folks from Lawrence probably know a bit more about him as the Bob Dole archives are at KU. But he had a very, very long political career in Kansas state politics. And he ran for president in the 1980s and the 1990s. He didn't win, obviously. In fact, he never won the nomination. But he did remain very active in Senate politics even after losing, um, losing the vice presidency. That's what I was trying to say. Quote, the Republican Party platform in 76 Highlights included supporting the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, again, still hasn't happened, commitment to a foreign policy in which secret agreements were banned, well, I think that was also a failure, and opposition to federalizing the welfare program. End quote. find it really, really interesting that both times that the RNC was hosted in KCMO, the vice president was a senator from Kansas. I really wonder if that would happen a third time. That would be kind of amazing. Well, that's all I have for this topic. Um, I apologize for those times that I rambled, but 
Thank you for joining me as we explore this piece of Kansas City's history. I hope you enjoyed it and you learned something. Sources include PendergastKC.org, an article from KCUR.org, KCConvention.com, KCLibrary.org, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and the Library of Congress. So they have a really, really cool spot on their website that lists every single Republican and Democratic national convention and summarizes the convention. I used several of those quotes here, except as I was finalizing my notes for this episode, I tried to go back to that site just to review, make sure I didn't miss anything. And even though I had saved the direct link, the page wouldn't repopulate. So I don't know where it disappeared to. It kind of sucks, but it was super fascinating to, to read. And I'm glad that I found it the first time I looked. Um, my other source included the whitehousehistory.org. That was also kind of interesting. I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show if you are not already. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or you can give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or coffee.com slash homegrownkc. You can give as little or as much as you want, even as little as $1 a month. Once you sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show, you'll be charged that day and then on the first of every following month. If you become a patron, you get three things. You get an item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. You get a shout out on every episode and social media post. Thank you for your continued support, Joan and Bjorn. And you get access to exclusive bonus content featuring other local historians, archivists, and museum curators. Everyone who simply donates will receive a shout-out on the next available episode, but you do not get access to that bonus content and you do not get anything from the merchandise store. Additionally, if you give a donation on coffee, 1% automatically goes to help fight climate change, which is something that I'm very passionate about. And finally, you can send me stars on Facebook, which equals monetary gain. If you cannot support me monetarily, totally get that, the economy is trash right now, then you can still support me by following, subscribing, liking all of my social media pages. That's Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr, and Twitter. I also have a YouTube channel. Um, I have figured out how to add the audio for my recordings to YouTube, so I'm in the process of doing that. There's no video attached to it, but if you would rather listen to this via YouTube, that is now an option. I'm Homegrown KC on all of those. Also, make sure you rate and review me wherever you listen, especially Apple Podcasts. And if you want additional information, you can visit my website. That's homegrownkc.wordpress.com. Again, homegrownkc.wordpress.com. Additional information on all of my topics up there. It's also the only place where you can subscribe to my newsletter. Once a month, you'll get an email just once. I'm not going to email you every day. That's annoying. Um, and it'll have updates for the coming month, you know, a summary of what we did the current month. Someday I'm going to use it for giveaways. It's just a really good way to stay up to date with the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com, or you can send me a message on any of my social media networks. Finally, if you're interested in what merchandise I have for sale, Go to zazzle.com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store. That's www.zazzle.com slash store slash homegrown underscore KC underscore store.
dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore Casey underscore store. As always, thank you goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the dear misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of every episode. And to local libraries, which enable me to gather all my research. Thanks for listening. Cheers. seem to shake this feeling and I can seem to get you off my mind